This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Colorado's forests are supposed to be the definition of picturesque beauty, but a new story in this month's issue of 5280 sheds light on a different reality at the campgrounds near Nederland, where mounds of trash, used needles, and dangerous encounters with long-term campers are commonplace. Journalist Tracy Ross joins us now to talk about her story. Hi, Tracy. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Can you start by describing the moment you found this dilapidated orange and white trailer just beyond a public Nederland campground? Sure. I was out uh, doing some reporting with Joe Hall, who founded a nonprofit in Nederland called Peak to Peak Forest Watch. And we were just cruising around the campground, getting a sense of the area. And he was showing me some other camps and tents that had garbage around them and marijuana inside, and they were clearly abandoned. And we walked up to this trailer that we saw. It was orange and white, and it was kind of sitting off to the side. And Joe and I were talking, and it looked like no one was there. Um, The trailer was pretty beat up, and it had some strange stuff around it, too. And Joe uh, sort of looked in the darkened window and said something, and this kind of voice spoke up from inside. And it was a little bit chilling because I definitely felt like we had sort of been being watched as we were walking around doing our uh, investigating and reporting. You've been a resident of Nederland for 14 years now and watched as long-term campers have moved into the area. What led you to this campsite and, and this story right now? Well, yeah, like you say, I've, been, I've lived there for 14 years and I have three children and I rec- recreate on the forest probably three to five times a week, whether it's skiing or mountain biking or hiking or taking my six-year-old daughter for a walk. And all the time that I've lived there, I've heard about these campers that come during the summer and they sort of spend a lot of time in these kind of two particular areas. One is West Magnolia camping area and the other is called Gordon Gulch and they sort of flank Nederland on either side. And I, I heard stories over and over about people leaving unattended campfires and a lot of violence that seemed sort of out of place on the forest. And actually in 2009, I was reporting a story about the Rainbow family for Backpacker magazine and heard about um, a fight between two men where they were using hatchets. And I didn't know if these things were true. They, They alarmed me, but I'm curious by nature. And because I live there and have kids who are on the cross-country running team, who mountain bike, who ski. I really wanted to know what was true and what wasn't true. And so I just decided to take a deep dive into the story and find out for myself. So what did you find? Are these campgrounds, are are people not going there anymore because of these long-term campers? And and tell me about this peak-to-peak volunteer program that you wrote about, too. Sure. Um, I would say, you know, this is kind of an underreported story, I feel, in the Netherlands area, although the local paper, The Mountaineer, has done a good job of keeping track of it and following it. So, you know, unless you know that this is going on, I think people still think of Netherlands and the Roosevelt National Forest as a great place to come and camp. However, once they get there, if they go into the local mountain shop, for instance, the Mountain Man store, the owner will tell them, don't go camping in these two areas. It's scary. Violent things happen. There's a lot of drug use. Just steer clear of these areas. And so I think people are slowly catching on to that and finding out what the situation is and steering clear. Um, And then Peak to Peak Forest Watch, again, that was started by Joe Hall. It's a nonprofit. 
he spends a lot of his own money to keep this thing going, and he has a thousand volunteers now. He started in 2016. And these people go out and basically go to their favorite places where they frequent in the National Forest and look for camps that should not be in these places. So it's okay to camp in designated camping areas, but slowly long-term campers are going deeper and deeper into the forest where, say, law enforcement, EMS can't watch and respond to problems when they happen. And one of the biggest problems that we have is unattended campfires. So what is contributing to all of this? Is, is it simply homelessness? Uh, I, I think so. I mean, I, I, homelessness is a broad, a, a broad topic and a broad hmm. sort of name. And as I learned in my reporting, there are different kind of factions of homelessness. So homelessness encompasses everything from people who are experiencing homelessness and don't have anywhere else to go but a national forest, say, because the shelters in Boulder are closed and um, Denver and Colorado Springs and Boulder have all outlawed public camping. So in a sense, what I was told is people are getting sort of swept up toward Nederland, up the canyon. And there's RTD. There's a bus that goes up to Nederland. It costs roughly $2.50. And people are kind of encouraging them to go up and camp on the forest. And so there are those people who just don't have anywhere else to go. And they're looking for a place where they can live in relative peace without much harassment from anyone, where they can kind of do what they need to do simply to get by. And then as it was explained to me, there are other factions of homelessness. And those are people who identify as, quote, home free, and they just don't want to be a part of the system and they want to live however they want to. And then there are people who identify as anarchists or separatists or another faction of people who, again, as it was described to me, are kind of out there because there's little policing and maybe they don't want to be watched as much as the normal person. And so they're kind of getting into some situations and scenarios sometimes that appear to be dangerous to other people. How is the Forest Service and the Boulder County Sheriff dealing with this? I mean, what's their role in all of this in terms of protecting campers, but also watching these people move into these these areas? Well, the Forest Service, I know, this is a huge problem that they're trying to grapple with. And it's not just Nederland. It's on forested lands all over Colorado and near little mountain towns. And it's all throughout the West and, and in different parts of the country. And... I think they have a difficult role because, you know, the forest is a land of many uses. And so as long as people are abiding by the rules, camping for no longer than two weeks at a time, trying to be sensitive, putting out fires, there's not much that they can do. And they can't just simply make people leave. They can't target one group of people and say, get out of here for the good of another group of people. So I think what is happening with law enforcement and the Forest Service is they're just trying to manage the problem at this point while thinking is going on around what to do about the problem in the larger sense. So you mentioned that this happens all across the state. Is it as pervasive in other parts of the state as it is in Nederland or is Nederland unique in this aspect because of what you said earlier, the bus goes up there and, and, and there's all of the metro Denver not dealing with, mm-hmm. uh, with campers and things in the, in, in, in the area? 
So I have heard that Nederland is one of the worst places in the country for this. Hmm. And um, actually, the, the, the Presbyterian pastor in Nederland, who's a homeless advocate, told me that studies that he's done and people that he's spoken to on other forests across the country have told him that the Willamette Forest in Oregon is possibly the only place that has a bigger problem than we do on the Roosevelt around Nederland. Um, but after my story came out and I posted it on Facebook and Twitter, I started hearing from other people everywhere from Clear Creek County to Grand County, Winter Park, Durango, Telluride, Aspen. Similar problems are happening on those forests and around those towns as well. What are, what are these the social services, let's say in Boulder and the surrounding areas, what do they have uh, to do here? I mean, have they reached out to those living in the forests around these campgrounds? What is their role in all of this? I don't know how much those agencies have done specific outreach on the forest. I know that they work with the pastor that I mentioned, Hanson Wendlet in Nederland, and he has an organization called Niche, and it's it's a consortium of government agencies and law enforcement and homeless ad- advocacy programs that all work together to try to address this problem. And so what they've been doing, they put together a pamphlet that they take around and show people who are camping who they can identify as long-term campers or people who maybe don't have the best practices for camping. And they give them these brochures and say, you know, here's how you put out a fire. Here's how you not contaminate the water. Here's a program we have around needle, use needle collection. And so, again, they're trying to manage the problem. Um, And I have heard down in Boulder there, there have been churches and other charities in the past who have given homeless people camping equipment and said, you know, like tents and sleeping bags, go up to Netherland. You can camp on the forest there. And I think that's a, that's a practice that's slowing or stopping because it's, it's ballooning in the way that it has. And briefly, you know, what's your takeaway from doing all this reporting? Is there a solution that you found? Uh, sadly, no. That that was the takeaway that I got from Tommy Sloan, the undersheriff in Boulder County. He, you know, he said very clearly, this is a problem that has no finish line, and they just have to keep trying to manage it and adapt their own practices to it and figure out how to deal with it as it exists while the Forest Service and other larger agencies try to grapple with the, the expanding problem and what to do on a national level. Tracy, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. Tracy Ross is a writer for 5280 Magazine. Her piece, Danger in the Forest, is in the most recent issue. North Korean missiles apparently now have the range to hit the U.S. mainland. And Hawaii was thrown into panic Saturday morning over what turned out to be a false report that an attack was imminent. Here's the alert that interrupted a TV basketball game. Stay indoors. If you are outdoors, seek immediate shelter in a building. Remain indoors well away from windows. If you are driving, pull safely to the side of the road and seek shelter in a building or lay on the floor. We will announce when the threat has ended. This is not a drill. For months, the world's relationship with North Korea has become increasingly tense. But last week, there was something of a change. North Korea agreed to send a team to the Olympics in South Korea next month. I'm joined by former U.S. Ambassador to South Korea, Christopher Hill. He's the former dean of the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver and an advisor to DU's chancellor. Ambassador, welcome back to Colorado Matters. Thank you very much. 
The threats back and forth have been more and more harsh over the last year. Uh, I want to play a clip here. President Trump speaking to South Korea's National Assembly in November. The regime has interpreted America's past restraint as weakness. This would be a fatal miscalculation. Now, though, this agreement weeks before the Olympics open on February 9th between North and South Korea. Is this really a breakthrough here? Are we really see, seeing something that's, uh, that's, that's new? Well, first of all, I would not describe it as a breakthrough, although mm. certainly if you look at this uh, unmitigated bad, uh, bad news we've had for so long, it was sort of a welcome respite for it. But the reason I don't describe it as a breakthrough is I think it's important to understand there are two different, very different sets of negotiations. One is uh, uh, six parties or negotiations to which the United States is a uh, is a member, and those, the purpose of those is the issue of security and uh, specifically missiles and uh, nuclear weapons. The peninsula talks are quite different. Uh, the North South Peninsula talks really have to do with the two Koreas trying to deal with issues like divided families, and in this case, trying to see if there's a possibility of having a joint Olympic team. So, while I think there's progress in that concept. I think we need to understand that this uh, that these peninsula talks are not really are not at all really about the uh, uh, nuclear or missile threat. So, so let's stick with the the peninsula talks. Then, how does this benefit North and South Korea from North Korea coming to the games? I mean, we're just they're taking yeah. place just fifty miles from the demilitarized zone. Exactly. I think uh, one has to understand the North Korean objective in in developing these missiles and. Uh, uh, nuclear weapons. First of all, it is not about defense. It is not about the concept that somehow the U.S. is threatening them all the time, and therefore they don't have any allies they can rely on and have to develop their own nuclear weapons. That's a uh, uh, a bit of a, a line that the North Koreans have used for decades. What it really is about is to take these very threatening weapons, that is, nuclear weapons and the means to deliver them, and point them at the United States Hmm. and essentially say to the United States, are you really prepared to defend Seoul if uh, you're going to risk Los Angeles? So this is pretty hostile stuff. And uh, the ultimate purpose of it is to somehow weaken the U.S. resolve in defending South Korea, weaken, weaken our alliance with South Korea, and otherwise, if they can, kind of decouple us from South Korea. And I think to understand Kim Jong-un, and I don't claim to understand him any more than anyone else does, but I think it's it's a couple of points. One, it's to um, uh, sort of fulfill his father's unfinished business of having nuclear weapons, and secondly, to fill his grandfather's unfinished business to uh, unify the Korean Peninsula. So these are two very aggressive thoughts. And so as they approach these peninsula talks, I think we have to understand that as background and then look specifically at what they're seeing in the, in the peninsula talks. One, they're saying to the South Koreans, hey, you have nothing to fear from us. Uh, yes, we're a nuclear power. Uh, no, we're not going to give up our nuclear weapons, but we can be a good neighbor. So it's that kind of message. Secondly, it's uh, to start the process of creating wedges between South Korea and the United States. Third, it's the process of trying to uh, uh, perhaps get some humanitarian assistance because I think North Korea is feeling the pinch of these uh, of these sanctions. From South Korea's vantage point, it's pretty clear they want these Olympics to be successful. This is a national effort. It's gone on for almost a decade to get ready for this. 
They don't want anything to get in the way of these Olympics. So I think from their point of view, it's a very immediate, important, short-term gain. And if something in the longer term can happen, terrific. Now, does the president of the United States deserve some credit with this? Uh, The president of South Korea has publicly thanked Trump for his influential leadership in making the talks possible. Is, Is that the case? Well, I think the president of South Korea has done pretty well. On the one hand, he's uh, calmed down uh, the area around the Olympics, pretty much assured that North Korea is not going to disrupt the Olympics. And secondly, because the real concern he would have is that the U.S. would come in and say, what are you doing? Why are you talking to them? We had an agreement. We'd only talk if they're willing to give up their nuclear weapons. He's basically giving the U.S. credit or specifically the president credit, and the president's happy to take that. So I think the um, South Korean president has done very well. How much credit Donald Trump deserves for the resumption of peninsula talks and the North Korean participation in the uh, in the Olympics in the complete absence of any move on missiles or nuclear weapons, I'll leave others to judge. But I think this is really has to do with a North Korean strategy more than a Donald Trump strategy. Colorado's U.S. Senator Republican Cory Gardner heads the Senate subcommittee that oversees East Asian policy. He's pushing hard for additional sanctions against North Korea, including cracking down on Chinese companies with interests in North Korea. He's introduced a bill. He says, well, quoting here, give nations and companies a clear choice. Do business with the United States or do business with North Korea? Will that approach in your eyes work overall? Well, like a lot of things in life, it's how you implement it. But certainly... The idea of tougher sanctions on North Korea, the latest set of uh, U.N. sanctions, which actually targeted North Korea's gasoline supply. You have to bear in mind, this is a country that may be making nuclear weapons, but they don't know how to make gasoline. They have to import refined uh, petroleum. So now we have some sanctions that really go after that. And I think, as Senator Gardner is suggesting, maybe there's even more we could do. He's trying to drill down and see if we can target uh, some Chinese entities who may not be uh, uh, waiting for Beijing to tell them everything. So there may be some sort of freelancers out there, and he's going after all of that. So I think it's basically the right approach, but I would argue we need a cooperative approach with China. And I think the history of our threatening China on whatever issue is a history where we really don't end up uh, getting what we want. Because at the end of the day, uh, we need to work with China. China cannot solve it with us, but we can't solve it without China. So I hope embedded in that strategy that uh, Senator Gardner is talking about is an understanding that we really need to sit down with the Chinese and make sure we have our signals clear about what our long-term objectives are, what their long-term objectives are, And we need to convince some uh, skeptics in China that U.S. troops in the Korean Peninsula are are not bad for China and far better than having uh, North Korean nuclear weapons in North Korea. So it sounds like, at least to you, China will be a partner in in this. Uh, Are there other steps, though, beyond sanctions, beyond talks with China that that the U.S. hasn't taken it or hasn't uh, gone, gone through that will maybe help? Well, again, I think uh, the elements are probably all there. We've tried to be close to the South Koreans. We've been close to the Japanese. We've worked this problem very hard in the U.N. We've tried to reach out to other countries. In fact, there's a big meeting in in Canada on Tuesday of this week to, to deal with this issue. And I think we've had a concept that we need to talk to the China, to China about it. It's a little episodic. We see a jet lag, Rex Tillerson get off the plane to talk to the Chinese. 
followed by a tweet from President Trump, which would appear to undermine his efforts. So I think some of the uh, uh, the execution of the policy has not been good, but I think overall the it's it's been the uh, the right approach. And I think there's another approach, and I think that's also embedded in the administration's efforts, is to look to see if there's anything of a direct means short of some sort of uh, aerial bombardment, which would invite the prospect of a second Korean War. But short of that, but some means to slow down the North Korean program, because they have made a lot of progress in the last year. And and briefly, is this um, approach by Rex Tillerson, the U.S. Secretary of State, uh, President Donald Trump, uh, is it it working in your eyes, this more tough approach uh, than what we've seen previously? Well, it's, uh, you know, it won't work until it works. Uh, And so I think, uh, you know, sometimes you you just kind of do the right things, the best things you can do, and then wait for, for a sign that it's working. I don't think the fact that North Korea is talking to South Korea is a sign that it's working. But uh, surely the fact that the Chinese have uh, accepted a set of sanctions, which includes limits on gasoline sales, that is extraordinary. When I was dealing with this issue for four years under George W. Bush, we never got the Chinese to get that far. So I think that is a good sign and and a real sign. But we have to wait and see whether, quote, it's all working. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Christopher Hill is a former ambassador to Iraq and served as ambassador to South Korea in 2004 and 2005. He is the former dean of the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver and now works as an advisor to the school's chancellor. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Jobs are a big reason Metro Denver is vying for Amazon's second headquarters. And yet the company uses robots for a lot of its work. And jobs it can automate, it does. That's the focus of Primed, a podcast about what happens when Amazon comes to your town. It comes from our colleagues at KUOW Public Radio in Seattle. And one of the hosts, Joshua McNichols, got to visit an Amazon warehouse and meet the people who work there. I am always amazed watching the robotic drive units. There's no other way to put this. They look like they're dancing. The robots are low to the floor, but they're quite a sight because they balance bright yellow cloth towers on their backs. They spin and twirl as they change direction, and they stop at just the right moment to let another robot glide past. It's a beautiful symphony of technology and people working together to fulfill customer orders. So where are all the humans in this? The humans are standing at their workstations, and the robots bring them stuff, at least until those humans get replaced by robots. Ah, the robots, they're taking over. (laughs) I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. The human race can bite my shiny metal! Does not compute. Does not compute. I'm Joshua McNichols. I'm Carolyn Adolph. From KUOW in Seattle, this is Primed. What happens when Amazon comes to your town? I was blown away by what I saw at that warehouse. But all those robots left me a little bit worried. Where's all this heading? This episode, we're asking, what does the future of work look like? 
in a world where machines are learning how to think. It's going to be used across the board as this incredibly powerful tool, which is going to bring all kinds of benefits to us. There's no question that jobs will be lost as a result of robotics and automation and AI. If you don't see people as necessary, then you're going to end up with some really weird outcomes. We're going to talk about the push for automation and artificial intelligence and how it's changing jobs today. It's important to recognize that this is not a direction owned by Amazon alone. I mean, it's happening everywhere. But you can get a glimpse of what the future looks like in Amazon's warehouses. Here's a warehouse job you can just feel is about to be taken by a robot. Brandon Raymond used to count things for Amazon. He'd stand in one place all day as robots brought things for him to count. It's a quality control job, and it can get pretty repetitive. So Raymond and the people around him used to sing. We started doing duets, like we would do concerts. It would be hilarious. What kind of stuff would you sing? I know we did the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Now this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down, and I'd like to take a Sounds like a fun atmosphere. Yeah, it was at first, but then... We were only supposed to have 12 errors in a four-day span, which is three a day. And that is, that's really hard to do in a span of 10 hours. To cut down on errors, Raymond says Amazon separated the workers. It got really boring. Coming in and then you're counting stuff so early in the morning, and then you're just like one, two, three, and you start getting sleepy, and you're like, oh. oh. that doesn't sound fun. But you know who doesn't get bored or tired at work? Uh-oh. <laughs> Robots. Ah! Back to work. Everybody. Work, 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 work. work the only work. reason a human like Brandon Raymond had his job is that he had the visual processing skills and the manual dexterity that robots don't have. Yet. And as soon as a robot can do what Raymond can do, they'll probably take that job. Martin Ford is a futurist and the author of The Rise of the Robots. He says machines have been taking people's jobs since the start of the Industrial Revolution. But so far, it's worked out. Take what happened when farming got mechanized. Now, in the short run, that did cause disruption. I mean, there were people that didn't have jobs and they, they crowded into cities looking for, for employment. But over the long run, it, it resolved itself. And ma- basically what happened is that people moved first into factories, right? Then factories automated and factory workers moved to the service sector. So today in the U.S., we've got something like three quarters of the population working in the service sector. Um, and almost no one working in agriculture. So that's been a big shift over time. There are a lot of jobs at Amazon that could be in for that kind of shift. Andrea Neri has a job at Amazon filling a truck with boxes. Whatever box comes is whatever box you sort of have to work with. She builds a wall of boxes in the front of the truck. Once it reaches the ceiling, she starts on a new wall. And I always tell people, like when I would train, I would always tell them, It's like playing Tetris, and all people are like, oh, Tetris, I get it. Of course, computers can play Tetris, too, and they can beat humans doing it. Amazon recognizes this, and they're doing something about it. They're sending warehouse workers to school. Like, if it wasn't for Amazon, honestly, I don't even think I would have my certificate as a nursing assistant. Amazon paid for Neri to take nursing classes. The classes are held right at the warehouse. It's a program called Career Choice, and warehouse employees can participate after they've worked there for a year. Amazon estimates about 10% of its warehouse workforce is enrolled at any time. 
You can even train to fix robots. Until such time as the robots can fix the robots. <laughs> right. I mean, but that brings up this interesting issue. I mean, Amazon says that whenever they bring in robots to a warehouse, they actually hire more people. So they're saying that robots create more jobs than they destroy. Wait a minute, though. I have to push back a little here. I mean, Amazon is a growing company, and it's growing at the expense of economic sectors that are losing jobs. So it's hard to really see what the overall economic picture is. Yeah. But whether bringing in robots results in a net gain of jobs or not, we cannot rely on the past to tell us what's going to happen in the future because the next wave of automation is fundamentally different. Robots are learning how to think. That was always our thing that we did. Now artificial intelligence has changed the game. Robots will learn how to stack boxes. They'll figure out how to count objects. Maybe they'll even manage this warehouse. No job is safe. Coming up, robots are coming for your job. You might have heard about this Oxford and Yale study. There was an article about it in Mother Jones, and it had this ominous title. You will lose your job to a robot and sooner than you think. The study surveyed 350 experts in artificial intelligence about when machines will be better than humans at certain processes. Then they averaged the results to come up with a rough timeline. Folding laundry is five years away. Woohoo! <laughs> ah, yes. Driving a truck is 10 years away. Conducting surgery, 35 years away. Ooh, that kind of sounds like a horror movie. <laughs> and speaking of horror, Bosses, artificially intelligent bosses, are 42 years away. In fact, by 2060, AI will be able to do every human task. People who are little kids right now will be middle-aged. This is their future. But what about, you know, art? AI can actually write music now. Here's a sample. I actually kind of like that. It sounds a little bit like David Bowie. And I think it sounds rancid, but it's not the point. Up to now, automation has helped to create new kinds of work. And those jobs have come to support more and more of us, especially in the service sector. But with artificial intelligence, all that changes. It's hard to find an economic role for most people in the future. Douglas Rushkoff is a professor at Queens College at the City University of New York. He wrote, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, How Growth Became the Enemy of Prosperity. He argues that the Industrial Revolution was always going to lead us here. Really, the object of the game since the beginning of corporatism, since the beginning of the Industrial Age, is to get humans out of the equation. You know, when we invented the assembly line and mass production, it was not so that we could make better stuff faster. It's always been about getting people out of the way. And it worries him. You know, if you don't see people as necessary or as, as the important figures in the story, then you're going to end up with some really weird outcomes. Like there are no good jobs left for anyone who's not a software developer. 
And that doesn't work, according to Todd Bishop, co-founder of the tech news site GeekWire. I think it is extremely condescending when people in the tech industry say, well, just learn how to code, because that is not the solution for society. It's not the solution for many individuals. And so I, I don't think that's the comprehensive answer. So is there another answer? There's this idea called universal basic income. That's when everyone gets paid something just for being alive. A paycheck for having a pulse. Because if people don't have jobs, they can't provide for their families. They won't be able to buy stuff. I bet Amazon wouldn't like that. (laughs) Other corporations wouldn't either. A lot of tech leaders have come out in favor of this. Here's Elon Musk of Tesla. I think ultimately we will have to have some kind of universal basic income. I don't think we're going to have a choice. The harder challenge is how do people then have meaning? Hmm. Well, I mean, if we got a universal basic income, I think I I would still be doing public radio, honestly. And I would definitely be on a beach. (laughs) Douglas Boshkoff is not convinced by the idea of universal basic income. What they're fantasizing about is the idea that the government will give people money to then spend at these companies, give them universal basic income so they can keep consuming Uber rides and Amazon products and streaming media. But eventually, even that goes away. He can't see how that could be sustainable. People have to be creating some kind of value um, in order to keep consuming. He's saying the universal basic income isn't enough. A survival wage for millions of people is not going to sustain our economy. So we've heard why in the future we probably can't all be software engineers and why some people think universal basic income won't work. Meanwhile, the robots are still taking over, and it looks like most of us are not going to have jobs. What should we do to prepare for that kind of future? That's coming up. We've been talking about how artificial intelligence is at an early stage. It's already replacing some jobs, and now it's about to really take off. In 40 years, we could all be out of a job. So how should we feel about this? I asked Todd Bishop. Should people be excited or scared? (laughs) Both. People should be both excited and scared. And there's a lot to be excited about, according to Martin Ford. You know, artificial intelligence is going to be used uh, in medicine, in science, uh, in clean energy to solve climate change. I mean, it's going to It's going to be used across the board as this incredibly powerful tool, which is going to bring all kinds of benefits to us. Would it be too much to ask if a robot could just bring me a glass of wine? That's easy. I mean, we could whip out a robot for that with my son's Arduino set. The future is going to come one way or another. So seriously, what are we supposed to do? Martin Ford has a 10-year-old daughter. He thinks about that a lot. It's really hard to... Imagine what the world is going to look like when she's, say, 30 or 40 years old. Here's his advice to other parents. Focus on things like creativity, you know, really try to create an environment for your kids where they value learning, where they love to learn, um, because everyone in the future is going to have a lifelong focus on learning, for sure. No one is going to learn one thing and then be able to apply that thing for a whole career. I mean, that's over with. Ford has another piece of advice, too. He says we're really going to need a strong social safety net. So things like unemployment benefits, um, food stamps, you know, general forms of welfare and so forth. These are programs that, as I look to the future, I suspect a broader range of people are going to have to rely on. Martin's final piece of advice is start talking about this now. It's 
going to be a, a very uncertain future in terms of how all of this plays out. And that's a big part of the reason that I spend so much time talking about it, because I do think these are issues that we really need to think about and talk about and, and have active debates about, because we're going to have to come up with solutions. It's not, it's not the kind of thing we can just sit back and, and let it happen and, and hope it all works out. So what do you think we should do? You can weigh in on our Facebook page. Search KUOW Primed. And start talking about this with people you work with and want to elect and with people you care about. If we don't start talking about it now, we could run out of time. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. That's Primed, what happens when Amazon comes to your town. The hosts at KUOW in Seattle are Joshua McNichols and Carolyn Adolph. Find a link to this podcast at CPR.org. On Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we love sharing the story of how the late reverend came to hear one of his favorite hymns for the first time in Denver. Ryan Warner explains. The song is called If I Can Help Somebody. It was performed at King's funeral in 1968. Here's a version recorded recently at the University of Denver from the Spirituals Project Choir. The soloist is Claudette Sweet. If I can help wanted to find out more about If I Can Help Somebody and its Denver connections. And so we've invited Vern L. Howard to our studio. He chairs the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Colorado Holiday Commission and knows this story. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Let me say that If I Can Help Somebody was written in 1945 by a woman named Alma Androzzo. It was recorded by various gospel groups and by mainstream singers like Tennessee Ernie Ford. Doris Day did a version. But it seems that King didn't hear it until a visit to Denver in 1956. What was he doing here in 56? Uh, 1956, the New Hope Baptist Church in Denver was having their Women's Day program. And they had asked Dr. King to come and speak. The New Hope Baptist Church was pastored by M.C. Williams, and his wife was Anna Lee Williams. And as part of the program, she had sung the song. She was the singer. Yes, she was. And so he heard it at this church. And what do you know his reaction to have been? Well, at the time, Dr. King was so moved by the song. He was still the pastor of Dexter Street Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. And on his way back to Montgomery, he stopped in at Atlanta, where his father was the pastor of Ebenezer and his mother was the uh, choir director. And he told her about it. He encouraged her to have the Ebenezer Baptist Church start singing the song. And then as he went back to Dexter Street, he had his choir start performing it as well. And so he spread it to Atlanta and then to uh, and his environs, yeah, right. Alabama. King apparently encouraged Mahalia Jackson to record the song, which she did in 1963. Uh, let's hear some of her version. Okay. I cannot help so body 
spoke with Coretta Scott King about this song. What did she tell you? That when she had heard the song and saw how Dr. King was moved by it, she realized that this was a song that defined Dr. King, his life. I mean, when you think about the lyrics of the song, when you think about how it says, if I could help somebody as I pass along, if I can help somebody with a word or a song. Now, Tennessee Ernie Ford, right there, he entered a word, a song, or a prayer. If I can cheer somebody with a word, a prayer, a song. That's how Dr. King looked at it. He looked at the Montgomery bus boycott, which was going on at the time. And when he thought about it, he said, you know what? The people we're dealing with, they're not evil. They're not bad people. They just know no better. So if I can help them with a song or a word to show how they're traveling wrong, then my living shall not be in vain. It goes on to say, if I can do my duty as a good man ought, if I can bring back beauty to a world uprought. Let's not forget that Dr. King was a Baptist minister. And the the final part of that is says, if I can spread love's message as the master taught then my living shall not be in vain. And mind you, everything he did was in a peaceful manner, as the master taught, and helping someone along the way as the master taught. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you as the master taught. (laughs) So it resonated with Dr. King, and it was something that was deep in his heart. It stirred his soul. And it turns out that If I Can Help Somebody was a song he first heard in in Denver. On February 4th, 1968, just two months before he was assassinated, Dr. King gave a sermon called The Drum Major Instinct. And in it, he imagined his own funeral and said he wanted to be remembered for serving others, not for his fame or his accomplishments. And uh, he ended the sermon by quoting from If I Can Help Somebody. So let's, let's listen to that. Yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind. But I just want to leave a committed life behind. And that's all I want to say. If I can help somebody as I pass along, if I can cheer somebody with a word of song, if I can show somebody he's traveling wrong, then my living will not be in vain. What goes through your mind when you hear that sermon? What goes through my mind was Dr. King came to terms with the fact that he was going to die that he was going to die in the service of the civil rights movement. See, Dr. King was receiving, on average, 
50 death threats a day. He said to Mrs. King and to his family that this was the sermon that he wanted to be eulogized with. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Vern L. Howard is chair of the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Colorado Holiday Commission. He spoke with Ryan Warner. Thousands of cowboys and cowgirls have descended on North Denver for the National Western Stock Show. It's the last installment of the annual event before a billion-dollar overhaul of the grounds gets into full swing later this winter. CPR's Nathaniel Miner introduces us to two stock show fans who have lived near it for decades. It took me a few minutes to find Dave Oletsky's house. It's tucked away on a short street with a railroad track on one end and a massive power line on the other. But Oletsky knows his way around this North Denver neighborhood. It's just across the South Platte River from the stock show grounds. He's from a Polish family that's been around here for a long, long time. We jump into his truck for a quick tour. This valley has been in my family from like 1870. That was my grandfather's house there. Cousins over there and cousins all through here. Globeville is only about two miles north of downtown Denver. But his neighbor has horses. Many of the alleyways are gravel. It feels like we're on the edge of a blue-collar small town, rather than in a city of nearly 700,000. What was it like growing up here? It was, we were a middle-class neighborhood. You know, everybody worked in the beef industry, in the smelter. Globeville and nearby Elyria Swansea helped Denver grow its cowtown roots. Today's stock show grounds include old stockyards that used to hum with activity every day. Meat packing plants were just across the river. Oletsky points out a rusty steel bridge. That was the cattle bridge. And they would herd sheep and cattle and everything over that bridge. That's how they got them to the packing house. Oletsky's life revolved around the stockyards when he was a kid. We knew how to sneak in every nook and cranny over there. and We'd always come back to school late, smelling like animals and tell, trying to tell the nun. We weren't over at the stock show. You know, like, yeah, we can smell you. <laughs> you know, was... Our tour ends back at Oletsky's house, where we meet his friend Betty Cram, who lives nearby. She came to the area after high school to work in the stockyards. It was about 1942. I've lived in this neighborhood for a long time. Cram is 95 years old now, but she remembers those days well. She met a cowboy and fell in love. I just consider... It was a magic part of my life. It was so pretty, so fun working down there. But then the livestock industry modernized. It didn't need a centralized auction location. So the stockyards emptied out. Most of the people in Elyria at Doville worked at the stock show itself and worked with the cattle. And after they were gone, many, many of them left. The neighborhoods have changed a lot since then. Most of Kram and Oletsky's neighbors are now Hispanic, not Eastern European. Grocery stores have closed, and the poverty rate is more than 30%. That's high compared to many other Denver neighborhoods. But these two old-timers hope the coming stock show renovation can bring back some prosperity. Remember, we used to lose every battle we ever fought. Yeah. <laughs> and now, you know, and now that's changing. We're not losing all the time. The city of Denver, Colorado State University, and the Western Stock Show Association are going to update and expand the aging campus. The aim is to turn it into a 250-acre, year-round attraction. Construction will kick into gear early next month. The city says the first two phases, which include new stockyards and a new event center, will be finished by 2024. 
an RTD commuter rail stop should be done in a few years too. There's another mega project in the works here, an expansion of Interstate 70. The freeway runs directly over the neighborhoods on a massive viaduct. Oletsky actually remembers watching it go up from his first grade classroom. And you're looking out and you're seeing, you know, the construction, and you didn't understand it. We were just little kids. The freeway split the neighborhoods in two. The plan now is to widen the road and put it below grade. Oletsky and Cram would rather see the freeway go away completely. That's not likely, but despite that, Oletsky is still hopeful. I want to see it all come back. You know, and with the renovation of the stock show, I think it's going to happen. You know, people are taking pride in things again. Betty Cram says she hasn't been to the stock show in a few years. She uses a walker now, and it's tough to get up and down the stairs. But these days, she's looking forward to watching her neighborhood change. Again, I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. And that's our show. Thanks to Brady McNellis, Michael Hughes, Alexandra McMahon, and Michelle Fulcher. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.